In this week's episode of How We Get By, I sat down with a good friend of mine, Steve, who is an environmental lawyer dedicated to the practice of medication, not medication, <laughs> meditation. I want to leave that in. Steve, I hope you don't mind. But I enjoyed talking to him. He's been somebody who's helped me a lot in my mental health journey. And I really hope you enjoy what we have to say. Hi, this is Monica, and I am here with my good friend Steve, and we're going to talk to you about what helps him get by. So, Steve, Mm -hmm. would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm Steve. I'm from Scranton, originally, and um, I'm an environmental lawyer. I know you from ski school. Yeah. You're a snowboard instructor and I'm a ski instructor. When I was a teenager, I started experiencing some mental health issues, clinical depression primarily. It started in my late teens. It could have been having to do with multiple concussions from football. Could have been genetics. Could have been the environment. What, what, I don't know. The, the, the cause isn't really known or super important to the conversation right now. But yeah, so I'm 34, so it's been a while. I've gone through a lot of different treatment options and techniques. And yeah, so I guess that's where I'm at right now. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, so a few things. One, I have to ask if you think skiers or snowboarders are cooler. (laughs) Um, In the East, uh, (laughs) you have to be honest, snowboarders are cooler. um, Oh, but you're a snowboarder now, so you can say it. Yeah, yeah. I guess you can say it now. I I don't think I could admit it until last year, until I started. Yeah. 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 But We still haven't boarded together, though. Yeah, well, I kind of, I stuck, so... No. Um, no, we I'll have get to better. do that, though. Yeah, but, it'll be fun. But the other thing I did actually want to touch upon a little bit was the um, concussion thing. Because I think that, I mean, that's a huge thing. And my, what I'm immediately thinking about is Ernest Hemingway. Because hmm. he, at the end of his life, you know, well, he always had mental health stuff, but a lot of it was... He was a boxer, right? What? Wasn't he a boxer? He was a boxer, yeah. And so he got a lot of concussions. And um, he got some later in life that really kind of threw him over the edge, I'd say. And so then towards the end of his life, like, he went crazy and committed suicide. But if you read his biography, you can tell that he is not in his right mind. Hmm. So, I mean, like, everybody says, like, Ernest Hemingway committed suicide. Well, it's not him sitting in a corner being like, I hate my life. I mean, it is. He had delusions. Not saying you're going to do that. I'm just saying, like, what do you think, as far as concussions go, do you see the link? Yeah, I do. What's difficult for a couple reasons, CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, is a relatively new, I guess, phenomenon, or Mm -hmm. or Boston University is just starting to understand it, and Mm -hmm. other universities, and the only way to be diagnosed is through an autopsy. So, I, you know, there's no, there's no way to tell. Um, But I, I don't think it's coincidence. It could be. You know, a lot of people start feeling mental health symptoms in their teen years anyway. Yeah, I mean, I had several. So do you think football is the question? Like, should people, should kids be playing football? No. You don't think? Uh, absolutely not. Wow. Actually, Malcolm Gladwell mm. gave a really I interesting speech at my alma mater at Penn. And a football player a few years before had committed suicide and it was discovered that he had CTE post-mortem. And he, he's, he was arguing... He was talking about black lung and when people realized it was a problem and the space between that time and when... I don't know what that... Oh, you mean like, like in the mind? Yeah, like in the mind. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. 
Okay. And halfway through the speech, he's like, well, what am I talking about? And he's like, I'm talking about CTE and football. And he argued, I think rather convincingly, that it shouldn't be allowed. It should be illegal. That's and what I love about him, though, is that he's able to explain things in a way that people are like, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And then he'll apply it to a new situation and make people think differently because then they can't argue because you're like, you just said you understood what I meant and now I'm applying it to this new situation and you have to think about it that way. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think that is certainly a talent of his. Yeah. I think he oversteps sometimes. But, yeah, I can see um, that too. It gets a little bit. He's definitely pushing the boundaries yeah. um, with the football thing. Yeah. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. I don't know anything about him and that. I just know, like, from his books, the way his thinking kind of works or, like, his writing works or his arguments. Yeah. He has a wonderful podcast, too. Oh, does he? Revisionist History. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, actually, I heard that podcast, but I never listened. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, did you want to disclose? I mean, you said that you, you kind of touched upon your, like, mental struggles, but is there anything else you wanted to add before we get into the questions? about things maybe that you either suffer from or have overcome or just anything? Um, no, I, I think depression is kind of the fundamental issue yeah. for me. And anxiety comes along with that. Like if I'm in a deep depressive state, the incapacity that comes along with that kind of adds to the anxiety. Like when you... When, you, when you're deep in it and you have trouble moving, you, uh, you know, I'm an attorney and I have a lot yeah. of responsibility and the, I think, panic sets in that you, if you think you're not able to accomplish what you need to accomplish. So anxiety comes along with that, but... Yes. Yeah. Oh, I never thought about that. Yeah, but it, you know, I think I think for me personally, the the um the baseline is depression. But it it you know it's I'm nowhere I deal with it now, and it's and I have for quite a few years, and yeah. I'm able to live a normal life. Do you think it gets easier for you to manage after it's been a few years? Yeah, it's it's interesting that. I think we've talked about this before. It's not as if the symptoms really change, but mm-hmm. you you learn how to deal with it and overcome it. And at least you can't necessarily stop the depressive episodes, right. but you can shorten mm-hmm. shorten the time that they last. Um, Especially with PTSD. Yeah. With me, when I get triggered, like it's like I can now shorten that. Whereas yeah. before it would have been like three weeks or yeah yeah it's like with you know meditation is my my big I guess sell here if that's the right word and you learn to have the same negative stimuli but respond differently to them or accept them more fully it makes them evaporate. Can you um, give like yeah. a tangible example of that? Sure. I, like, if I'm on silent retreat, my hips aren't, or they hurt generally. Like, my left hip in particular. Well, um, so first, can you just go into silent retreat a little bit for people who don't know what that is, maybe? Sure. There's all different ways to do it. I do it in a, a Buddhist context. I'm, I'm an atheist, for the record, but my retreats are all Buddhist and particularly in the Tibetan tradition. Yeah, the shortest time I think it, that it's really effective is about a week. And you go and silent retreat is you can't talk, read, write. You don't make eye contact in the hallways. You know, certainly no electronics. You can't make um, eye contact in the hallways. I did not know that part. You know, no one's going to give you a hard time, but you're, you're expected to, you, you keep your right. eyes down. and okay. So you see where you're going, but you don't. Because sometimes in retreat, you uh, there's exercises where you'll sit across from a complete stranger and you know look into their eyes for an hour and for an hour. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it, the, you think about what you're doing. You're meditating maybe ten hours a day. Um, yeah. So, so okay. So that brings you back to like. So tell us about. You said you were sitting there with the hips. So. So you don't. 
the Tibetans are not like like the Zen tradition where you know you have to be perfect and mm-hmm. they'll hit you with a stick if your back is out of line. And <laughs> the Tibetans really don't care. There's chairs there. There's all kinds of cushions. You can do whatever you want. But sometimes you'll you know I'll be sitting cross-legged and it'll be extremely painful and you you know you don't have to push it you push it however far is comfortable but if you can you learn to watch the pain essentially and that's something that you've been able to apply to depression sure i mean the example we were talking about was you know we're both we're both drinking tea and just as you you know that you are not that cup in front of you you learn to recognize thoughts as thoughts as objects to your subjective with a hip like you would learn to watch the pain so it's it's separate it's just something you're observing mm-hmm. still hurts just as much right but when you so for me i tend to cycle sometimes where i get like anxious and then i'll get depressed like i'll kind of go back and forth but it is easier to kind of recognize that and like separate yourself from it, which is something that I think you've helped me with. And so I think that it's interesting that I'm just very interested when you said, you know, that you had a few years to kind of get used to it, however you phrase that. But I think about when I met you, which was, I was like 26, I think maybe, I don't know. I really have no idea, but it was three years ago. So yeah, 26. And then like in that time, I think I've definitely been able to, grow and like get a little bit more of a harness on my mental health yeah a little bit you know and I think it comes with like you said like just getting used to it and separating from it 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 comes to practice I think which can you touch upon that the practice thing because in regards to meditation yeah, yeah. Because I, mean, I th- think that was one of the most, when I was starting to meditate, I think that was one of the most helpful things that like I could grasp. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the point of view that sticks out most for me is uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a super famous Buddhist teacher in the Theravada tradition. And he said that there's this famous quote, I'm going to butcher it, but it's something like, I don't know why people call Buddhism a religion. It's a practice. And the, the comparison that's often made is like going to the gym in that every repetition, like if you're doing bicep curls, every repetition, you know, in the long run, it's going to make you stronger. And it makes you weaker right now you know as you're tearing the muscle or whatever that's how you get stronger you repeat and with meditation it's it's the exact same thing from from that perspective things like focus and empathy and even love are practicable skills and you're not so you're not stuck with the frame of mind that you have you can practice and improve it deliberately and empirically almost you can you can test and if if you're not improving then you go back and you reevaluate but you can improve those things i think of it too i guess like a sports team after school like you'd go to practice to get better totally or like practice the skill so yeah and i think that's the biggest thing because i think a lot of people sit down and meditate once and then get frustrated like i can't do it you wouldn't go to baseball practice and then like strike out and then leave and say, I can't do this. I mean, you might, but <laughs> you shouldn't. <laughs> you might, but that to say, I can't do this would be the wrong conclusion. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's a, that's mm-hmm. a great analogy. Questions? Sure. All right. So do you want to um, pick the first one? Sure. What keeps you hanging on? Hmm. So in what context? You mean like thinking about things like suicide? Yeah. Or it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be suicide, but it could be like when you're going through those really tough times and you're just life fucking sucks, what am I doing this for? So yeah, I guess <laughs> suicide. 
Yeah. I think that Andrew Solomon said that, you know, depression lies and you, you see that when you go through it a couple times, when you're, when, when it's really deep and it's really difficult, your thoughts are corresponding with all of the, whatever neurochemically is happening that's making you depressed. Mm. And I should clarify depression because I've had to say this to so many people. Depression is not sadness. It feels nothing like sadness and depression is not grief. It feels nothing like grief. If sadness is the opposite of happiness, then depression is the opposite of vitality. So it's like someone draining whatever vital force you have and feeling completely incapacitated and numb in a really difficult way. Not numb like in a, in a, in a, in a good way, like numb as in like feelings don't matter. There's worthlessness. There's, you, you start like, uh, thinking nihilistically. I think, I, I don't know. I got off the point there. I think that's the point, but what keeps you hanging up? Oh yeah. I'm sorry. That's okay. That's where we were going. Depression's kind of like, for me, comes in waves and stages and they're trackable. Like a journal is a good thing to have. Even if just like during the day you put like a check mark on the day because you're so depressed you can't write. That's just data for you later. It's like, oh my, sorry. So I was super depressed for like a couple weeks here where I was just like marking something you down. You keep one? Yeah. That's amazing. The point is though that is that when you see the, the cycle quite a few times, then when you're in the deepest part of it, you know empirically that you're going to come out of it or at least there is reasonable hope that's amazing that's amazing because that's such a um i feel like that's so beneficial for people who have a mind that works towards data and research and evidence which is how i think your brain works it has to but it's, it's a weird thing when you're you're playing your inner monologue is telling you the opposite you ha- if you have objective data in front of you, it just makes it, it gives you something super important to hang on to. Yeah. And you're right. I'm, I try to be objective. Um, no, that's but- so cool. Your idea too, with like just the check mark, because for me, I would just not write in my journal when I get depressed because I've tried so hard to keep track of this stuff. God knows like my therapists have been asking me to do it for years, but I just don't do it. I don't do it. I don't, I, I'm but not that's, perfect with that it either. That check mark thing is genius. Maybe I'll try that because then I'll know. <laughs> I'm, I'm just glad like, you like I, it. I feel, yeah, yeah, it's simple, but it feels like a good solution when you really feel like you can't do anything. Yeah, when you're that depressed. Yeah. Another thing that, like, goals change. That's one thing that, like, no matter how depressed I've been, I can always make a tiny mark in the journal. Yeah. I don't know, it just kind of keeps it going. Yeah. It's a tiny, tiny thing. That's amazing. I think that's great. Awesome. Well, that's cool. I ask everybody that question, but I don't really answer it because I answered it in my first episode. So if anybody wants to hear that, they can go back to episode one. Cool. All right. What was your biggest mental health breakthrough? Uh, It was a book, Waking Up by Sam Harris, where (laughs) he, I guess for context, I you know, I was raised religiously and then I ended up studying philosophy as an undergraduate and I realized that none of that was viable. So I was one of those staunch atheists and I really admired the, you know, the the so-called four horsemen, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, and Sam Harris. Sam Harris, he was the, he's the neuroscientist from UCLA um, not to be confused with Dan Harris, by the way. Dan Harris is the ABC because they both have meditation apps right, right now. They're okay. not related. 
Dan Harris is the ABC news correspondent who had a panic attack on TV. Sam Harris is the neuroscientist. And I like them both, but totally different perspectives and they're not related. That's good, though, because now I'll check out Dan Harris because I never heard of him before. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's fascinating. Um, he wrote a book called 10% Happier. Oh, I've heard of that book. Yeah, so yeah. that's Dan. Okay. Sam is, he's kind of like a public intellectual. He wrote a book called Waking Up, which the subtitle is A, a Guide to Spirituality Without Religion. So he had kind of established himself. Like I knew, as he says, like his bullshit detector was very well calibrated. His book is explaining how, what meditation is, why it's beneficial, how to do it, which is the biggest obstacle, I think, especially in the West and in like land of yoga studios and weekend mindfulness retreats, which are if that helps, that's totally cool. Just don't confuse it with proper meditation. That breakthrough, the book was the breakthrough. And then I started actively meditating. And then I looked out silent retreats and started going. What do you think the book is? What was the message that really hit you? Well, it kind of embarrassed me. It kind of it humbled me and demonstrated how arrogant I had been in dismissing a lot of these techniques. There's a lot of, meditation has a lot of baggage, and it could be like New Age stuff, or because it's presented most often in a Buddhist context, or in like a nominally Hindu context, there's doctrine there, and there's all kinds of unwarranted beliefs. Like, I don't believe in reincarnation or karma. Poetically, maybe, but not in the strict sense. The book kind of embarrassed me in saying, like, I, that, that, was, that was super arrogant to say, because I have this awful experience with Western religion and Christianity, that I, I shouldn't have just discounted the entire East Okay, so that makes sense. And I think like, that... Like, like the, it's, the difference is, like, in, in the Tibetan tradition, there's, there, there's no faith, right? You never, at, you never set... You, you never go into a retreat and a teacher says, well, you have to believe this, this, and this. Whereas, just to get started as a Christian, like, you have to believe several things about the universe and what happened in 2,000 years ago in Palestine and just, just all kinds of stuff that is not supportable at all. Mm-hmm. And that's why you need faith. It's just faith is just believing without evidence. And you don't, there, that faith part is not part of practice in the, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Okay. So those are the, the differences. Yeah. Faith, faith is the line. Yeah. thing that was really important to me with reading waking up was because he's a neuroscientist right Mm -hmm. yeah so he can describe it in a way that also has like research or makes you look at your brain in a more concrete way meditation is getting into what your consciousness actually is yeah after you read the book what changes did you seem to make in your life like what what tangibly did that do for you I started a practice on a more, I guess, emotional level. It, I was, you're getting super, super hopeless, or I was. I think when depression leads to suicide, it tends, it, it takes the form sometimes, and certainly in my case, as a cost-benefit analysis almost. Depression and anxiety, I wouldn't wor- wish, wish it on my worst enemy. It's terrible, and the and the treatments are blunt at best. So you go through these cycles so many times and they're so exhausting and draining and you go through such like deep levels of hopelessness. There's not nothing that can be done. Like this is go- going to be my life when most of when the majority of your life 
is spent suffering in a way that you can't find any relief, then you start thinking, what, what reason do I have to continue to leave apart from not hurting the people that I love? And that's a terrible way to live. So certainly having family and friends and stuff kept me alive. But reading, reading that book kind of gave me like there, there's an, there's a scientific empirical way to deal with this that I've not explored. And it's perfectly rational if you spend the time to And is that out. when you started meditating? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. when do you want to explore like how to meditate? I can explain how I learned and how yeah. I was taught. And I know there's all different types and fundamentally the goal of meditation, if, if you want to call it a goal is figuring out what the, what yourself is, what you're calling I, and ultimately discovering that the sense of self is illusory. You know, not that it doesn't exist and not, that, not that like people aren't people the feeling you have that you're kind of somewhere behind your eyes looking out at the rest of the world is illusory. And people that have read Sam Harris will recognize his influence on what I'm saying. It's, it's challenging to philosophically get there, but it's provable. But that's only the first part. Then you need to recognize it, which is really where the practice comes in and the difficulty. It takes a lot of hours and hours and hours and years. Or if you're lucky, just like one great moment, but a practice of self-inquiry, looking for whatever it is you're calling self. So how does somebody get started? The way it works for, worked in my experience was you have to develop kind of these skills yeah. through practice first. Okay. And most of which is different, learning different types of awareness. Well, not different types. It's like um, learning to be aware of more things. In a lot of traditions, people usually start with the breath. Just because it's always there. You right. can always look at it. It's not like you're just trying to calm yourself down. Like the point of that exercise is really to realize how crazy and unpredictable your mind is. So you're trying to focus on anything. There's nothing special about the breath. You could focus on... I, I stare at a wall. It doesn't matter. And you're just seeing how long you can focus on it. And then watch what happens. And thoughts will intervene very quickly. And if thoughts don't intervene really quickly, then you're not paying close enough attention. You learn those basic things, and you're just like going to the gym. Your focus gets better and better and better, and you start to recognize this split between awareness, this that's not at all attached to an ego, all of this egoic stuff. That's how you start, but it, it you can do it anywhere, anytime, for any amount of time. My favorite teacher, um, Mingyur Rinpoche, says, you know. Short time, many time. Short time, many time. You know, it, it, like every time, every time you wash your hands, whatever, just get in the habit of refocusing. Even on my lunch break at work, like for five minutes, it, it's in, it's crazy how much it could help. Just five minutes of oh, just totally. breathing. Mm-hmm. For me, a mantra really helps. So I just repeat over and over and over. I've never had a mantra before this year, but. I started reading about the benefits of having that and mine is I am love. And the great thing about a mantra is like if you keep repeating it, repeating it, repeating it, then every thought that does kind of come in, like float in while you're meditating is under that umbrella of like I am love. So for Mm. me, it helps it to be less invasive for my anxious thoughts or negative thoughts because then it's already under this beautiful umbrella of I am love so it can't be that bad if that's where it's coming from that's awesome thanks I've never used the mantra but yeah I I just well the reason I was also gonna say the reason that I started doing that is because I read a book and I'm really bad at 
remembering titles, names, whatever, but the teaching basically was that you should spend 25% of your attention should go to either your breathing or your mantra while you're meditating, and then 25% should be you keeping an awareness of, am I lost in thought? Am I coming back? Like, do I need to, like, bring myself back to my breath or my mantra? And then the other 50% should be just you observing what's happening in your brain. I thought that was kind of helpful because then when my thoughts do go off when I'm meditating, then that does be like, oh, I'm still kind of paying attention to have to bring my awareness back. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. There's, yeah, I mean, there, like I said, like there's all these different... Like, clearly, we're both going in the same direction. Right. We have this different, um, we have a different approach, for sure. Yeah, yeah. We think that's wonderful. Yeah. Like, one key point here is that all of this, when you're recognizing whatever state you're in, the key is to do it non-judgmentally. Right. So, if you're practicing, I guess to use the gym analogy again, or the sports analogy or whatever... If you're practicing free throws or something in basketball and you keep missing and you have a bad day, it can be frustrating. But that's not really the play with practice and meditation. It's Even if frustration arises, you, you simply notice it. Whatever comes up. I've had you know, years into practice, days where I just couldn't... My mind was just all over the place. And the practice is to take whatever that is, and just watch it. And don't say that sucked. No, or don't try get not attached to, to it. Like, but if you do say it sucked, just watch that. Too. Yeah, you know, right, You're just right. watching whatever happens. Yes. I, I know exactly what you mean. And I think it's so therapeutic, especially if you do it after a hard day, because I feel like in, if you just take those 20 minutes to let your mind like process, because I think it's just like honestly letting your mind process in a lot of ways, like just letting it do whatever it needs to do for a while and then get it out of your system. That's how it feels for me, though, because otherwise I would just sit a lot of times. I would just sit around the whole night being miserable where I could have just meditated and then felt better. That's how I feel. Well, I'm glad it works. Yeah. Um, I'm glad it works that way for you. It does for me. That's wonderful. Yeah, I, it does for me. So, did you want to meditate now? Yeah, whenever. All right. Okay, so now Steve is going to talk to us a little bit about a guided meditation that he has used in the past. And then me and him are going to meditate, and then we'll come back. Yeah, just on YouTube. It's called... Well, it's just, it's called, it's the name of the book, actually, Waking Up with Sam Harris, dash mindfulness meditation. There's a nine minute one and a 26 minute one. Starting off, I would definitely recommend the nine minute one. But if you're ambitious, that's cool, too. And (laughs) for me, it was helpful. It goes through the whole process. I feel like it does a good job. Yeah, so Steve and I are going to start. We'll be right back with you. Okay, so we are back now after meditating to Sam Harris's guided meditation. We did the eight-minute one. How do you feel? Yeah, I'm in a really good place. I feel calm. That time was pretty interesting for me because at the end I kept getting... Because I wasn't sure if Sam Harris was coming back or not. But... And he wasn't, just so everyone knows he didn't come back. It was kind of a fade out. But then I kept thinking, wait, is it over? I started to get this like anxiety about the situation because I'm like, I don't know when Steve's going to open his eyes. And But that was good because that's exactly what meditation's for because I just observed that. I was like, oh. It was great. Yeah, I'm yeah. just like, oh, you feel anxious because you don't know, but eventually you'll, you know, like, I don't know. So I thought that was exactly what meditation is supposed to do. Yeah, that's a, that's a really cool insight, actually. It's weird to, it's kind of, it's difficult for me to talk after. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Um, Well, do you want to say anything about, else about your meditative experience? Yeah, 
here. It, I mean, it was just, that was, I guess that's a good example of how little time you need um, if you're willing to, that was under nine minutes. I guess we pushed it probably to 10 because we just kind of, you don't need to do something extreme like go on a week-long retreat or... Yeah, right. It's interesting to me that I, so I meditate for 25 minutes every day, but now I used to need a timer and I don't need a timer anymore. Mm, that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah, my brain just knows. Oh, oh, so you'll, it'll end yourself, like, yeah. Yeah, and so I'll set a timer anyway because I think it's fun because every time I wake up, it's like 30 seconds left of the timer and I'm like, that is so cool. Mm. My brain is awesome. Also, I've used meditation. There's this book called Self-Therapy, and I would recommend it. I think it's a helpful resource. Use meditation to interact with different parts of yourself. You go into a meditative state, and then you, if you feel that anxiety coming up, then you really start to focus and then try to explain to yourself, like, what does this feel like? And then you actually start to realize that there's a part of yourself that is identifying with whatever feeling that is. And then you kind of talk to that part of yourself and figure out it's just basically your higher self communicating with like the parts of yourself that elicit behaviors that maybe you don't understand. Hmm. So I guess it's that's something I, I might just take a whole episode to explain because I think it could be beneficial and it's too hard to go into right now. But my point... <laughs> I was just going to say, if we were going to go down that route, we'd have to define some terms. And, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's like definitely... It's like a pretty thick book and it, yeah, it's intense. The reason I wanted to bring it up is because it's been very important in my healing to kind of use that process. And if I didn't start meditating, I probably wouldn't have been able to like, I feel like I've built upon meditation and being able to use meditative states to heal things that have happened inside of me as a result of trauma. Mm. So I just am all about meditation. <laughs> I great. fan meditation, yeah. team meditation. It's, it's an interesting I'm thinking about that, using meditation as a tool for other means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important. That is a really important point to make. Yeah. 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 So what I will say, I feel like uh, after, I'm kind of on a couple second delay now. Yeah. And that will be, that's, I said that you, it's evidence of, you know, what, how little time you need. But, it's also when I take eight minutes now to do something like that, I'm going right back to some of the the states that I was taught on retreat, and some of these some things a lot of time, and there's I didn't I just don't want it to be unclear. There's a huge value in going to retreats because when you when you do something like this, you can get right back there really quick. So are you saying that like something that took you maybe a week to learn, while, not learn, but maybe discover while you're in a retreat, now even just in those eight minutes, you can, that comes back to you? Mm-hmm. So yeah, so then that lesson sticks with you. And so it's not, yeah, I, I get exactly what you mean. Right now we're having a conversation and I, like my body kind of feels like I got shot with a tranquilizer. <laughs> But my awareness is super duper heightened. Yeah. And when I started practicing, I didn't get any of those feelings. Yeah. And it took going on. Maybe that's a boring point to make, but I just wanted to... Absolutely. That there's value in both. We could also get into uh, the brain health aspect of it. Because when I go into a meditative state, I... My brain, it gets to stop. It gets to shut down for mm. a while. And that's so, I think that's so important for your neurons <laughs> to get what that break. Mean? So they're not fire, because when you have thoughts that are just ping-ponging in your brain all day, your neurons are just constantly firing. I mean, that's basically what they're doing. Interesting. And so when you meditate, you're giving them a chance to stop. They don't need to keep firing constantly. You're giving them 20 minutes of time where they don't really... And then I think when you have the thoughts that creep in, that's your neurons just firing. 
So when you observe it, you're you're just like, oh. so that's why they don't continue to fire because you're observing it and you're not getting the rest of your neurons to make all these connections. That's fascinating. Yeah, I acknowledge that, but I have to say I feel completely opposite. Really? Yeah. Wow. I feel, I feel like every neuron in my head is lit up for whatever that means. That's so interesting. Ultra, ultra, ultra awareness. When he says, you know, if you feel sleepy, it, it, it's kind of funny to me because I remember how that feels. Right. But now when I meditate, it's, I'm, you're ultra alert. Like, just why, that's how you're able to yeah, sit Yeah, but I think you're ultra alert. alert because your neurons aren't being used up on stupid shit. I don't know about that. Like, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I could be totally off, but... Well, neither am I. Um, yeah. But part of what's been interesting... Well, I always just encourage anybody to look at the science because someone like... I mentioned Mingya Rinpoche, who's in, yeah. who um, I went on retreat with, or went on one of his retreats about a year ago. He was one of the first Tibetans to come over and sit in a functional MRI machine. Okay. When they were looking at his brain in different meditative states, he was he was essentially lighting up areas of the brain that are like the default network would kind of shut off, and your prefrontal cortex would be, you know, alive. And the science that you actually like increase cortical folding and gray matter thickness and stuff through meditation we make your brain healthier physically so i don't yeah i don't feel i don't i don't feel it's not even relaxing to me to me it is it's um it's a certain type of there's almost like a certain passion that goes along with it on my facebook profile yeah um that you know what's that back banner thing the cover photo yeah, the cover yeah. photo. So my cover photo is that old RCA ad where yeah. like the guy's sitting in a chair and like there's a TV and it's blowing him yeah. backwards. Yeah. That's how meditation feels That's to me. so interesting. It is completely different for me. Yeah. That's why I put that picture there. That's cool. Yeah. As long as it works, I think that's the whole point. Yeah, I mean, I definitely right? get things out of it. So I get it. Yeah. It's just funny how it looks different. But we've talked about that before. I used to, before I meditated, I used to just think of myself in a room with us. There were two sofas and there were two of me. Mm-hmm. In the other sofa, there was uh, myself. But it would just be the part of my brain that speaks all day. Like that inner chatter that never shuts the fuck up. And so me, I would be sitting in a chair and i just observe I'm going to say it, this bitch, go on all day. Like, just say the most ridiculous things. When you, like, can look at it that way, in your mind, if you're like, oh, I'm so upset that guy broke up with me. Well, now you're looking at this girl in a chair, like, crying hysterically, sobbing, and you and yourself are like, girl, can you get it together? Like, please? (laughs) You know, but it's a way to observe yourself without being attached to whatever emotion is being. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. Yeah. Yeah. So. I'm glad that's helpful. Yeah, I think it is. Well, as, as long as it, it's all entirely subjective. I know. So as long as it's helpful to you. Yeah. I think the point of the practice that I'm talking about is there wouldn't be two selves. If it, there's just, there would be like an overarching awareness of one illusory self. So that's why it feels like overwhelming to me sometimes. Yeah. And you know, you can't always have these peak experiences, but it's essentially like these these old Buddhist sayings, they're a cliche, like, make me one with everything, yeah. or love for all sentient beings. Like, those, they're not faith-based. They're, those are feelings right. that you can start to identify and then cultivate. And when you get to a certain state, then it's yeah. like, it does feel like being one with everything. Because there is no... It's I just do. Yeah. Maybe that's a little esoteric, but... No. All right. Do you, <laughs> we're like going for the goal. Do you want to pick a question? Oh. So this one was specifically for you. Would you talk about the role of your art, whatever medium, 
or what role that plays in your mental health? Because you're a poet, we're sitting in a room um, full of your paintings. I admire that a lot, and I'm not an artist. That's cool. Well, you are an artist. That's not true. Well, it's hard because I have two main mediums, I would say, and that's writing and painting. Writing, I think I've always just had. I started as a child when I was in fourth grade and just kept a journal ever since. I go back to those times and it was clear that I was trying to process something, you know? I, so it was, I think it was always just a way for me to process my thoughts. And I can't really speak a lot about writing because for me it's just been so automatic that it's kind of hard to figure out what mm -hmm. the role is because I've always done it. I definitely know that it's a processing tool and that if I'm having a really hard day or just any day, I write every single day in my journal and I've always done that. So whether it's a poem, but poems come out like I poop them out. So I don't, I don't know how else to describe them other than sometimes I'll just it just comes out and I'm like, oh wow, I didn't realize that was bothering me. That's cool. So writing's a little tricky, but I can talk to you a lot about so, it, so it's to be clear. So it's a it's a mechanism for getting things out that aren't that aren't apparent, like getting problematic things yeah. on paper out there, so you can yeah them. yeah. So I think so I think with my brain, I I describe my brain to my therapist like this. Everyone knows the analogy of having a bunch of tabs open, in, and that's how your brain feels, hmm. right? But that's not really how mine is. I have five groups of tabs open, and they all fire at the same time. <laughs> it's like I'm always hopping from one to the other. I feel like my brain has the, the capacity to really multitask in ways that are really not helpful for me. And the reason I'm telling you this is because writing helps me get rid of the tabs. Okay. So a lot of times I'll be thinking one of all of this stuff that I need to do, whatever I have on my schedule or whatever, but then I also have personal stuff I have going on. And I think that's a very normal thing, but I think it's the way that they hop from one to the other and I'm not able to focus on just one and figure out like what course of action to take. Mm. So what I do is write it all down so it's not in my head anymore. And then usually after writing, I have some kind of conclusion of where I need to go next. Awesome. Okay. And at least it's not bouncing around up there. And then... That makes perfect sense. Yeah. And what makes you think that you have more windows or tabs open than the average person? Perhaps maybe you're more just more open about it? Maybe. I mean, I definitely think that there are people that have, like, similar... So I shouldn't say more than other people. I don't know if it's, like, an ADHD thing... But I think I have, I don't really know how to explain it, but I feel like, I'll be honest, like weed, medical marijuana helps me not have that. Okay. So when I rely on weed, it's because it, I can actually focus on one thing. Okay. And so all the rest of the things that are usually going on in the back of my, I don't know how to describe it because it's weird, but if, say I... And a good example would be like being at work and 25% of me is concentrated. And this is why I'm not good at attention to detail because 25% of me is focusing on the task and it's very easy for that 25% to do whatever I need to do. And then like 25% is worrying about something that happened 15 years ago. And the other 25% is worrying about like what my friends are doing and if I'm being a good enough friend and what I have to do. And then the other is like worrying about what I had to do after work and it all happens simultaneously. It's it's uh, interesting to me that you say you're not you're not good at attention to detail. Sitting in a room where we're surrounded by <laughs> these you know huge um, like incredible paintings. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm just curious because that's interesting. Yeah. Though I guess it's a different harnessing of paying attention to detail. But I will talk to you a little bit about my painting because I think that can help you understand another aspect which is I didn't so I didn't really paint like I paint now until I was 27 and I went through like a pretty bad breakdown it was a time where I was depressed and I felt like at that point I couldn't write 
because I didn't want to write whatever was happening in my brain. And I just didn't even know where to start and it was too overwhelming for me. And I couldn't really talk to people. I was in the most depressive state ever and the only thing I could do was paint, being able to see the colors on the canvas. And I would always just start with whatever color I was feeling. These paintings would come from it. Now I, I love to do it and I find art to be like a challenge intellectually as well, like to be able to be like, can I paint that? Like, is it possible for me to do that? So there's that challenge. But I'll tell you that the painting behind you, which is... Uh, Remarkable. Thank you. So they go bigger painting and it has, it's like a scene with a lighthouse and there's some ships and there's a big moon and it's very colorful. That was when somebody told me that my teeth were yellow and I got very upset because I'm a sensitive person and I was very upset about it and I came home and painted that and I had no plan I had no idea what I wanted it to be I just picked a color that I felt like was my mood and for the next seven hours I mean I can't see all the colors (laughs) I mean that there's all all the colors in this yeah there's a lot of colors Um, the other aspect of art is like, so if one, it's getting that out, but the other aspect to me too, is I do have a nihilistic idea of the world in a way that I don't believe that I'm going to find anything on this earth that's going to make me feel like I would feel if I were in my paintings. And so that's a way for me to get that feeling. Wow. that's, That's really interesting. Do you think anybody feels like this? No. Mm-mm. I don't think it's possible on this earth. Okay. To feel so as if I would I would feel if I were in that painting. Is it inspiring? I think it's a way for me to bring up something to life that will make me feel that way. And hopefully other people feel that way. Okay. Mm-hmm. I can't always create in my life what I want my life to look like, and I can't create that feeling all the time in my life, but I can create a painting that has that feeling. I think that's amazing that your two kind of mediums, artistic mediums, serve some overlapping, but also like distinct purposes Mm -hmm. in managing your mental health. Yeah, and I do go back and forth. Yeah. So it's like sometimes I write constantly and I haven't painted I haven't painted recently a lot because I've been writing a lot now. Yeah. But then I'll go the other way. Is there any correlation between your mental state and what type of medium you use? Not that I can figure out so far because I've thought about this a lot. I think it's just that I burn out on one. It's that it's hard for me to even explain because For example, like when I just like painted that mural, that was a big deal for me and I like worked very hard for that and I painted a lot before that and then once I did it, I just burned out on painting. Like I didn't want to paint anymore. And for the listener, Monica has been painting (laughs) huge um, murals. (laughs) It's been a cool adventure. Yeah. But I just get to these points where I just can't even look at it anymore and it doesn't make sense to me and it worries me. Because I'm like, what if it doesn't come back? Mm-hmm. But usually in that time, then that's when I start writing. And then I'll make progress in my writing. And then I'll get burned out on that, and I'll go back to painting. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah. Do you want to talk about art and paint, or art and mental health? Oh, no. I was, I was curious. Yeah, Because yeah, you're, you're yeah. an artist. Yeah, thanks. I, I don't think you would call the type of writing I do artistic. <laughs> I think that the um, chords that you do are artistic. Yeah. This is something kind of zen about that. Yeah, I, I do like dried gourds. <laughs> and I, you like carve them, right? Yeah, I use, I use like a Dremel tool and a really tiny drill and then fill them with LED lights. And they, I'm making one for my new nephew now, but the one before I, that took me an entire year. It's beautiful. Thousands and thousands of drill holes and... Yeah. I think it's amazing because it's the concentration that you have to... That's a meditative practice in itself. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, so that's cool. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, I'm going to ask you another question. Thanks for that question. I really liked it. Okay. 
this is a good question. Does the inherent subjective layer of mental illness, example, comparing it to a broken bone or cancer, add to the stigma? And does it make it tougher to talk about? Okay, so this is your question. So do you want to elaborate a little bit? Yeah, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm looking for your opinion on the way that mental health is discussed and the stigma that everybody talks about right. and right. that I think I think it's changing in no small part to due to people like you who do podcasts and hey. put their stories out so I really admire that you take take PTSD or something and you compare it to a broken bone right. I'm talking about the subjectivity you can't look at someone with PTSD unless they're having some sort of episode and know that there's this and I'd much rather have a broken bone <laughs> than PTSD. Right. I think that makes it sometimes more difficult to talk to. Like, it, like family members, coworkers. You know, dep- depression doesn't exist. It's just suck it up. Just mm-hmm. pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, and get going. And that, I don't know, I, I can't really, no, I can really think of like a more hurtful thing to say to someone. Like an invalidating thing to say. Yeah, I mean, you. I always just have the conversation and say, yeah. you know, I, I actually suffer from clinical depression, and here's what it feels like. And do you? Yeah. Would you do that at work? I, I have done it at work. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And this is inspiring. With family and stuff, do you, you don't come at it aggressively. You just say, you know, I think that there's a lot of confusion about it. It's not laziness. It's not sadness. Everybody feels sad sometimes. Everyone's going to, going to go through grief at some point, unfortunately. Everyone feels lazy once in a while. It's absolutely none of those things. And I think that because it's not... like you can, you, There's no like blood test for depression. And, and also there's things you can do, like changing your diet and having, being physically fit or, well, meditation can have positive impacts just like with any other physical issue there's a lot of confusion and a lack of understanding so i'm i'm curious what you're uh, sorry is that that uh explain the question no it actually is a really great question especially because in one of the interviews i i spoke to somebody about the analogy of like i wish Sometimes I wish that people could just say, like, when people are suffering from a cold and you're like, oh, that sucks. Like, because you can't really, you could kind of see the symptoms of a cold, but you could kind of see the symptoms of depression. So it's but like... not necessarily. Not necessarily. I think, I think when you have mental illness, whatever it is, you, one thing you learn... Is to hide it. Just to hide it, yeah. yeah. You're right. I agree with that. I wish that we could, I wish we could talk about it as if, as we would talk about a cold. I don't think it should. The analogy's there. It's not the same. Mm-hmm. But I wish that we could say, like, if somebody's like, "Oh, I have a cold. Like, this is fucking shitty." Like you said, there are times where I go to my friend's house and we'll be at a party, and I'll just say, "I feel really sad today." Like, I just feel really sad. And the first few times I did that, I, I got kind of like weird reactions. But then other people will be like, "Oh, I feel that same way." That is something that I wish that we could do more. Speak about it. I don't think that it's the same. I don't. I think you're right that there's a little bit of a danger in acting like they're the same. You can fake mental illness in a, a lot of circumstances. Like if you wanted to abuse a system, hmm. to use your work thing. Like I'm if so you, if innocent. You, if you were able to. <laughs> Well, I mean... I know, I know. I'm just so innocent because I'm like, I never considered that before. Well, I'm just trying to draw... I'm trying to to talk this out, like, to figure out the comparison. So say, like, with the cold, take the flu. Like, it's totally reasonable to take a day from work if you have the flu. But if you have... If you're having mental health issues... You can't say that. I mean, some places are much more progressive and you can take a mental health day... Most, I don't think, I don't know the statistics, but most places aren't, as yeah. I understand it. The argument against that is always, like, if you, uh, <laughs> if, if you have, like, mental health days, then they're going to be abused. You can't... Prove it. You can fake 
depression in a way that you can't fake the flu. Yeah. You could fake schizophrenia yeah. if you were a good actor and you really... Actually, think of all the mental illnesses in um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Like, I never saw it. Well, it's just acting. It's yeah. just brilliant, brilliant acting yeah. and a brilliant script and stuff. And, right. And the whole thing. But yeah. they're Jack Nicholson and actually Danny DeVito and they're all... They have different forms of mental illness. Mm-hmm. You can't, you can't fake. You certainly can't. You can't fake a broken bone or the flu or cancer. Or see, I always like. See, I always like thought it was similar to diabetes. Because yeah. that was the analogy I've always used in my mind. Because you can't see diabetes on the outside, and it is definitely something that needs to be managed day in, day out. And other people don't really... I mean, you. it's not the same, but that's the closest. It is closer, yeah. Yeah. But there is a... There's no. There's a blood test for diabetes. Right. But there are blood tests for depression now, too, I believe. Well, I don't, I don't know how that would work. I think that they do it. They get a doctor around here. Because people keep telling me to get the blood test taken. That's interesting. That's really... I'll have to look into that. Yeah. I know people at work actually... They get if they're getting FMLA. And I don't know how that would... It couldn't be across... If you did a blood test for diabetes, it's definitive. Mm-hmm. Unless you don't have... Unless it's a faulty test or something. I can't imagine a blood... I'm, I'm talking out my ass. I, I, I can't too. imagine a blood test for depression. I know. And so I'm... It would be like 100%. Right. So I don't know how it works. And I don't even think it's just for depression. I think it's, like, for mental illness. I don't yeah, know that, how it works. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, like, I don't know. We And it's fine. They, we don't have to know. People, Somebody can tweet me. Yeah, that'd be cool. Tweet me and let me know. Is there a blood test for this shit? Actually, that's a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Instead of cutting it, that's a great way to do it. Yeah. Just, Yeah. Yeah. I'm totally ignorant here, so right. I would love to learn, so... Yeah. Um, I don't know, but I really... But the reason why I bring it up is because I've heard my coworkers talk about it. But I don't... But, I, again, I haven't done my own research. I don't know the validity of it. I don't know what they're talking, you know, so... Yeah. Cool. But, yeah, and I wanted to ask you, like, what do you... Do you think talking about it is fighting the stigma? Yeah, absolutely fighting the stigma. Yeah. I don't know how... I don't know that it's always healthy to talk. Yeah, like, there's talk. a certain way, I think. I think there's a place, there's a time, there's a way. Yeah. I mentioned Andrew Solomon earlier, and... Because he has this incredible... Somewhere over there. TED Talk on depression, mm-hmm. which was, you know, hit me like a ton of bricks. It was, it was just amazing. And he talks about, like, aid workers... Right after the Rwandan genocide, they it was reported that there were some problems with the Western psychiatrists that were being sent over. Solomon asked, like, why? You know, what's going on here? Like, what? They said, well, all these Western psychiatrists, when we go to them for help and they we sit in, like, a dark room and we're not outside and, you know, they just make me... They just make us tell them all the terrible things that happened to us. There's no music, they don't incorporate the community, and that is totally not helpful for what we're doing here. And it's totally not helpful for our mental health to just re- like bring up all this stuff. It's and yeah, I mean it's I I've had some really great psychologists over the years, but I've had some also more of my experiences have been analogous to that like sitting in a room talking about terrible things you need to find the right person it goes to like a meditative point like how you can't really stay angry without disappears just like any other thought any other emotion unless you actively bring it up again unless your mind is thinking about it again well that's what i'm thinking about is because i go into therapy and i do discuss like all my traumas for me, talk. it is helpful to me, but I do get that aspect of then I go throughout my life and I keep 
filtering every interaction I have through this negative experience or negative behavior that I know I have that I talked about in therapy for like the 20 millionth time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I do wonder if that just keeps it fresh in my mind. And it's like, if I wasn't talking about it all the time, would I even be doing this? Because maybe because I keep bringing it up is... It, it, it did for me. I mean, yeah. there, there were there were times in my life where I therapy was profoundly unhelpful, and that's I I've, again like I've been amazing therapists and I'm, no and, I, I I and think that are, yeah I think and I'm not a therapist ways. but if I, you're feeling fine I don't I don't know that it's always a good idea to go into a therapist and start dragging things up again right. at that point right. Right now I'm doing EDMR, which is like reprocessing trauma that's happened to you as a child. And that is the most helpful form of therapy for me because it's actually... I'll, awesome. I'll be there for 15 minutes, do like some eye movement shit, and then figure out something really deep that happened to me and why I feel a certain way. And then I feel like almost cured from it. Hmm. It's really cool. Oh, that's amazing. But that's but that's a different form of therapy. That's mm-hmm. not talk therapy. That's not me going in there and rehash. So yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that you would like to add before we wrap it up? No, I just, I have, I admire you a lot for doing this. And I'm, yeah, leave, don't cut this part. I, I think, um, I think these conversations are super important. Podcasts are an amazing way to kind of have a conversation and let some other people into it and, I I hope you continue to do this, and I hope it gets to a lot of people. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. I appreciate you being on here and talking to me about all of this. It's really cool, and I think it's going to be helpful. Yeah. It was an honor, so a really cool experience. So thanks thanks for all you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. This week's recommendation is, yep, you guessed it, Waking Up by Sam Harris. I have read that book twice, and both times they were equally as insightful and helpful. With Steve, he's, I'm just going to say it, Steve is a very brilliant friend of mine. He's very smart, and Some of the books he reads are above my head, uh, but this one is easy to read and it's something I think everybody can get a little bit out of. Uh, So I definitely recommend that. If you liked the show, remember to subscribe. Um, If you're on Apple iTunes, uh, leave a review. I'd love to hear from you. And I hope you have a wonderful week. Mm -hmm.